Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy. And this week we're going to spend some time with a sit-down comic. We'll learn whatever good things a musician has learnt in these past two years. And Jennifer Walsh will be here with the latest of her Things Know Things, the thing this time being Insta-cloned pets. But we begin in Tokyo, or Edo as it was known a few centuries ago, and the journey into Rakugo of Katsura Sun. Sunshine. Rakugo is the art of traditional comic storytelling with its 400-year-old origins in Edo, Japan. In 2022, though, perhaps its best-known practitioner outside its home is a Canadian who moved to Japan, discovered Rakugo, and trained under one of the form's great masters. Katsura Sunshine currently has his Rakugo show running both on Broadway and in the West End, to where he commutes from his home in Tokyo. He told Culture File, about his journey into the medieval art form of sit-down comedy. Hello? Hello? Anybody there? Hello? Uh, yes, can I help you? I wonder what the reaction of people in Japan to you, a, a sort of like a red-headed Canadian, is suddenly um, going to give them their own tradition, as it were. Because I am the second non-Japanese foreign or Western Rako storyteller in the history of Japan. And the first one was 100 years ago. This is something people hadn't seen before. So when I first, before I was known, it was kind of startling for people. But a lot of people ask me, you know, you're going into a very strict, hierarchical, Japanese, traditional performance art and the world of that art. And, like, were there a lot of barriers? And I think the, the most surprising thing is there weren't as many barriers as I would have expected. At first, when nobody knew me, for the first minute, I could make a couple standard jokes about me being foreign and people laughed and that's no problem. So I've got an in with the audience, no problem. But in the end, it's like, are you funny or not? So it's just like any stand-up comedian working in North America. It's like you got to hold your craft and you've got to do it by just failing and falling flat on your face in front of audience after audience until you get how, like what you get your timing and they say, oh, okay, now, now I know what works. And then, you know, you just grow from there. So in the end, at first, people, you know, kind of kind of liked it or found it a novelty. But then my master is extremely famous. He's one of the most famous storytellers ever, really. He's a very, very famous television personality as well. And you take your name from him. Well, I didn't take it from him. He gave it to me. <laughs> yes, the master gives you a, a stage name that's based on his name. Uh, you take his last name, which comes first in Japanese, Katsura. And then you take one of the kanji characters from his name, or he, he gives you one of them. So you're immediately de- identified with your master by your name. So, yeah, he gave me the name Katsura Sunshine. So tell us how you got involved in it. You're, you're born in Canada and, and you're Canadian. You, you, you have a background in languages, first off. My educational background is languages, but my whole career started as a playwright and composer and producer of musical theatre. And I took the uh, the musicals I did when I was when I just graduated from university. Actually, I started them in university. Were from Aristophanes, so ancient Greek comedies. And I had one show, Clouds, which Aristophanes, Nephiloi Clouds, which my my adaptation ran for like fifteen months in Toronto in a small theater, just out, just out of out of university. And as I was researching Greek theater. A scholar had written in a scholarly article that Greek theater, ancient Greek tragedy and comedy, and Japanese no and kabuki traditional theater had all these coincidental similarities. But when you think about it, the Greek theater is 2,500 years ago, 
and the those two art forms are 400 years ago in Japan. So there's no there's no way one got in touch with the other or anything like that. So the fact that they had all these similarities, I thought, okay, I gotta I gotta go see some kabuki. And 23 years ago, when I came first came to Japan. There was no Google, so I couldn't Google it. I had to go. I had to go myself. And maybe if there was Google, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have come to Japan. You never know. So I took a trip to Japan, and just by the third day there, I thought I'm never going home. This place is just too fascinating. So I fell in love with Japan long before I ever knew about Rakugo, this traditional Japanese comic storytelling. We all have funny habits in Japan. They have a saying, "Nakute nanaguse," which means for every funny habit that you know you have, there are seven other funny habits that you didn't realize you had. The first time I saw Rakugo was five years later. I'd been in Japan five years, and it was at a yaki. Do you know yakitori? It's the grilled chicken on chicken skewers and really popular. Restaurants and the restaurants tend to be super small, like mostly just counter, and so yeah, you could talk to people on, on the left of you, on the right, uh, right of you. And I had been going to this one near my place in Yokohama, near Tokyo, like literally eight times a week. I loved yakitori, <laughs> twice on Sundays. And the, the the owner of this shop happened to be an amateur rakugo producer, and he had a show in his shop once a month. And so, but he'd hire professional storytellers. As a producer, it wasn't his main job. Uh, the, the storytellers are professionals, and he just invited me. He said, you, you might want to see this art form. And that, that was it. So I owe my life now to Yakitori. The tiger is shaking and shaking and praying to the Buddha for his life. The lion is enormous, fierce, terrifying. The lion walks up to the tiger step by step by step. Well, the way you become a professional storyteller in Japan is you have to get a master to accept you as an apprentice. And then you serve as an apprentice under that master for three to four years. And that's a very traditional apprenticeship. I was three For me, it was three years, three and a bit, not one day off. I went to my master's house every day, first thing in the morning, did the cleaning, the laundry, folded kimonos, did menial chores. And then he has a show once every day or once a day or once every two days or so. He's performing a lot. So then you're helping the master out at the show in the dressing room, laying out the kimonos, serving tea, setting up the stage, setting up the sound and the lights. So you're doing a lot of stage management in that way. Um, when he gets dressed, you help him put on his, his kimono and, and that when he when he changes kimonos, you fold up, you, you help him wear the new one, you fold up the old one. So you're, you're always with the master. So you're there and you listen to his stories day in, day out. And that's the apprenticeship. So you, they say in Japanese, nusumu, which means you steal the art. So he doesn't spend three years teaching you. You spend three years watching and gleaning whatever you can. Traditionally, hundreds of years ago, this was not a written tradition. There are no texts. This was an oral, A-U-R-A-L, oral tradition. Traditionally, they say the master would perform a story in front of his apprentices three times, and the fourth time, the apprentices would have to try to perform it back. When you're early in your apprenticeship, you have to ask permission at first. Is may I memorize this story? And if he thinks it's over your head, he'll say, yeah, what, are you, what are you talking about? That's, that's, that's 20 years from now. Try this one or something like that. And then, But you have to memorize it. And then you say, I've memorized it. And then finally, he'll watch you do it, throw you some pointers, and say, come back in a week. And then he'll watch you again and say, okay, here's where you're still not getting it. Come back in a week or whatever. But when you're with him every day as, as an apprentice. And, and then once he gives you permission to do the story, then it's your story for life. It's like you have a license to do that story. Mm-hmm. 
So this is a super famous story, and I'm going to do a very short version of it here. Once upon a time, there was a little boy with a very long name. His name was Jugemu Jugemu Goko no Surikire Kai Jarisuyono. Sungyomatsu Ungyomatsu Huraimatsu Kuneru Tokoro Nisumu Tokoro. Yaburakoji Burakoji Paipo 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 no Shuringan. Shuringan no Gurindai. Gurida no Pompokopino. Pompokonano Chokyume no Choske. It was a very long name. So a stand-up comedy, everybody has their own style. One might hold the mic, one might lay, leave it on there, one, one might walk around the stage, one might be pretty still, that kind of thing, right? With Rakugo, it's very, very, all, everything's very, very much decided. You're, you're kneeling on a cushion, and you're wearing a kimono, and the only props are a fan and a hand towel, which can become different objects, like the fan could become a, a kiseru, which is a traditional Japanese pipe, that kind of thing. And then even to the fact that when you're, when you're certain characters, you're looking left, you're certain characters, you're looking right. This left and right is all actually codified. There's over a thousand professional storytellers now in, in Japan. Every storyteller would be, doing, would be doing each story pretty well the same way. And then you have this sort of opening convention of the pillow. Yeah, the pillow, the makura, which is the kind of warm-up, which is before you get into the story, it's a self-introduction. And it's a, really, it's a chance to become friends with the audience because you want the audience to like you and to want to hear your story. But also, it's a chance for you to figure out what audience you have. And a lot of times, most of the time, actually, you have not decided which story to tell until you've actually gotten on stage and started entertaining the audience. You use that time to try to figure out what story they might like to hear. One day, his neighbor, a little boy named Kim Chan, a much shorter name, came to pick him up for school. And Kim chan said, Let's go to school. I mean, I guess the boy's name there, when you're saying that, that there are words that are intelligible to a Japanese speaker in there. So maybe little ideas are popping out as you're sort of doing that incantation. Is that, is that right? When you do the full version, which is 20 minutes or so, it's actually a father. It's time to name his baby and he wants an auspicious name. So he goes to the monk and gets suggestions. And the monk gives him a whole list of names which have significance in in Buddhism. And so the first ones are explained. The first ones, Jugemu means uh, the spirit of life everlasting. And Goko Ono Surikira means something else. And, and the, the first one, first explanations are kind of serious. And when, when Japanese people hear them, they imagine the kanji characters and they, they can visualize it. But down when you start to get to Pompokopino, Pompokonaro, it slowly dissolves into nonsense and sort of fanciful stories. So the name is explained. And Jugema's mother came out and said, Adama Kinchan, you're so nice, so kind. But our Jugema, Jugema, Goko no Surikere Kai, Jarisin, Yonosin, Yamatsu, Yamatsu, Hura, Matsuku, Neru, Tokoro, Rizu, Tokoro, Yaburako, Jiburako, Jipai, Popai, Popai, Pono, Shuringa, Shuringa no Gurinda, Gurina no Pompokopino, Pompokonano, Chokyume no Choske, is sleeping. It becomes sound poetry. My Japanese friends often say, do you translate the name? Like, did you translate that into, like, American names? Like, you should say, like, Jonathan Nicholas Jingleheimer Smith or whatever they want to say. I say, no, 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 no. 
People don't care because Japanese people don't understand the name. They're just listening into a long name. And actually, like, the reason this story goes well, you know, in New York and in London is because people get to hear a bit of Japanese. So it, it, it takes the pressure of knowing, understanding it away from it because this is a name, so who cares, right? You're doing a, a thing that the comedian Stuart Lee, who often is in the Leicester Square Theatre, does, where you're really trying the audience patience there. He's going to keep saying the whole name, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. It's going on and on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I keep my finger on the pulse of the audience, and if, if they, it seems like there's a couple of people getting annoyed, I, I shorten the story. <laughs> Wait here, wait here. I'll wake him up. Hey, hey. Jigaba jigaba gokoro suri kiri kai jaritsu ingeru sugimasu sugimasu fura matsu kuna to koro jimbo to koro yaburu koji buru koji pai bo pai bo pai bo koshuri ga shuri ga no gurenai gurenai no poppo ga pino poppo ga no chokyu me no josuke. Wake up. Kinchan is here to pick you up. I'm sorry, Kinchan. I'm so sorry. Jigaba jigaba gokoro suri kiri kai jaritsu ingeru sugimasu sugimasu fura matsu kuna to koro jimbo to koro yaburu koji buru koji pai pai shuri shuri ga no gurenai ping kong kang kong. Ma'am, his name was so long. School for today is already finished. One of the things that I was seeing when I saw you perform was a, also a kind of North American tradition of uh, of vaudeville. I mean, I, I I felt things like Abbott and Costello in your roots as well. It's fascinating that you said that. Is a, that is such a fascinating question because I trained in the Osaka tradition and there's two traditions there's Osaka and there's Tokyo Edo and in Osaka there's a tradition of another kind of of comedy called manzai which is Abbott and Costello it's the same thing it's two people a clown and a straight man that tradition is permeated into like people from Osaka is permeated into their human relations so what you someone in Osaka like business in a business conversation someone will purposely say something stupid and then that offers the chance for another person to say what are you talking about and then everybody around laughs and this is this is all part of the Osaka rhythm like the way people in Osaka speak is like they're Abbott and Costello basically and but they just put it into one person very much had a huge influence on me by coincidence I don't tend to make my own stories because the pillow part, as we were talking about, that's all your own material. So when, so the second half, I just tend to do traditional material or my master's original stories. But I have done one original story, and it's not even original. It's Who's On First by Abbott and Costello in Osaka dialect. And it kills. It took a while to get it to kill. It took like two years. But I said, this is too funny and too good to pass up. How's that? You kind of get it? Because the question is who's on first and the person's name is... I'm explaining I'm explaining yeah. who's on first. But because the, the question is who's on first and the person's name is who, then it becomes confusing. So In the Abbott and Costello, you say we give, we give them funny names. Oh, nicknames, yeah. Like who's on first, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. And everybody kind of accepts that. And in Japanese, in Japanese audience would not accept that that fast. So what I had to do... Is, is do a little bit of an introduction saying, oh, we got a great team this year, but the problem is they're all foreigners. They have these weird names. Here's 
this the first base he's from Greece. What's his name? Dare Donatopoulos. Dare Donatopoulos. Ah, I can't say it. I'll shorten his name. I'll call him Dare. Dare is who in Japanese. So when you give her like a logical reason for why these names have become this, then the audience is suddenly accepted. And this was the the whole barrier for me doing this story. Once once someone suggested this, it turned the story around for me. <laughs> Katsura Sunshine, who is currently playing monthly in Leicester Square Theatre, London, and New World Stages in New York. Now, as the pandemic thinks about becoming a memory, a memory that fades daily, we might find ourselves trying to hold on to some of the things we learned in that extreme phase of our lives. Violinist Cleona Ryan used that time to call up her fellow musicians and talk in a way that sometimes seemed impossible in the roiling storm of rehearsals, touring and performances. The conversations she brought together in her Bittersweet Symphony podcast are not the familiar exchanges of musicians with a show coming up. They are careful unearthings of the challenges and even the lasting traumas of becoming and living as a classical musician. We're listening to some of those conversations on Culture File in the coming months and we begin this time with the story of percussionist Katrina Frost. It was full of bittersweet experiences because I was being pushed into these situations that I wasn't comfortable in that I knew were good for me, that the only reason I was in them is because of pandemic and relationship breakup. So it was bittersweet every day, really. Like It was a very important 18 months for me. It was the best and worst year of my life. I'm Cleona Ryan, a violinist, member of the Irish Chamber Orchestra and a freelancer. In August 2021... I began recording open and intimate conversations with my fellow musicians. Together, we documented the bitter, the sweet and the bittersweet of life for classical musicians during a global pandemic, when the concert halls shut their doors and the music stopped. This time, we hear from freelance percussionist Katrina Frost. We begin in New York in March 2020 and she's in Tech Week at the start of a three-month US tour with Celtic Woman. The first case started in New York and I was watching CNN, the hotel room, going, this is bad. Like, So we showed up to sound check and we're all kind of going, what's going on? The next thing we were like, thrown on a flight home. And so we fly from New York to Dublin and lockdown in Ireland. I just settled into it. I listened to my gut and my gut was telling me to leave the long-term relationship that I was in. I didn't even know if I'd be allowed on the train from Dublin to Cork. And I think when you're coming from a place where you have absolutely nothing, you're literally back in your parents, you've no work. You know, when you feel really afraid of life and when, you, when you're working from a place of depletion, you have to ask for help, get used to asking for help. How did it feel to ask for help? Terrifying. Terrifying. I started cancelling immediately. I didn't want to leave any stone unturned, particularly going forward with my life. My parents and my sister Sinead in particular definitely got me through it. And my friends just meant the world to have all that support. That support isn't something she took for granted, having dedicated her life to her music and her work. When you're a freelance musician, you don't say no to anything and you make sure you're in all these different worlds so that if one or two elements dropped... 
there would always be something else. I remember my phone pinged one day and I kind of went, what could that be? I realised how much I'm in alert all the time. And as a freelancer, not being connected to anything in terms of your employers and stuff, it's pretty much you're on your own. And it, it was a real reminder of that. And when work was gone, it was like, well, what's left, you know? Because I was really worried that I'd sacrifice too much because of work. Katrina is home with her family in Cork and begins to wonder, what now? What next? Down the road is a cabin, an artist's retreat on a neighbour's land. It's basically a cabin and what you do is um, you work on whatever you want to work on or not work on it, just be there. And you help out as well on the land, which was brilliant for my head. I was picking weeds and shoveling and digging and the counselling at the time, she was saying, you know, sow the seeds now for in the spring to grow. I had all this space and I was really intrigued to see what's in there. Like, is there a creative bone in my body? I feel like I've been a performing robot, a bit of a monkey. You know, I started at, like most musicians at four or five years old, yet I've never been creative. I've never had the time. We're always busy. Just, I just, just this amazing freedom. No ties, nowhere to be. That was fabulous. Those six weeks were really great. Her six weeks are up and she's looking for a fresh patch of land to keep sowing seeds. So it's out west to Sheep's Head and the very edge of the Atlantic. Eventually, through word of mouth, found a house in West Cork. It was supposed to be for three months and then it ended up being seven months. The longest I didn't see anyone was kind of 11 days. So I was doing the cold swimming and all that all through winter and all. I was really just trying to stay healthy, mentally healthy. And that's, that's what I was doing. While she's in Chief's Head, she takes part in an online workshop with Music Network, performs her own music to her classmates and a door opens. It's to Fla Fest 2021 on TG Cahar. I ended up playing stuff that I wrote in West Cork and in the cabin on national TV for Fla Fest. And I loved doing that because it was my music for the first time that came completely from me. Every note of that that I had eventually played, I had worked on it. Do you know what I mean? But Sheep's Head and TG Cahar isn't the last stop in Katrina's journey. The seeds I sowed during all of this, one of them that came to fruition was an application to Centre Cultural Irlandais in Paris, and I got it. That would absolutely never be happening if it weren't for all the pain and all the effort and all the work and all the stuff I had to do, I suppose. This was a devastating time for musicians, but it was also a time of growth and creativity. We all learned something about ourselves. Realising that I've actually been a control, I thought I'd no control. I thought I was something bobbing along in a sea and that's been a big learning experience. I think the biggest thing I learned was just having the courage and the bravery to ask. You know, when you're gigging, you kind of have to show up with a sense of bravado and I'm in control and it's part of showbiz. But I loved the surrendering and saying, can you teach me? Can you, I want to learn and being vulnerable again. Again, trusting the gut, trusting your own pair of ears and validating your own stuff. And what about this process of reflection and recollection? To look back on it, it's very emotional, but good, really good as well, because so much good came out of it that I'm reminding myself today of how far I've come through it all, where I'm at now, and reminding myself of the commitments I made to myself during those months. But 
percussionist Katrina Frost there talking to Cleona Ryan. And the music you heard was Katrina Frost's Trip to Paris. If you'd like to hear an extended version of the conversation, you'll find Bittersweet Symphony in all the podcast places. And finally on the Culture File Weekly, it's the latest from Jennifer Walsh, in which our correspondent notices are stirring in the world of petfluencers, those social media accounts that carefully nurture the online clout of animals. This is Jennifer Walsh's Things Know Things. I follow humans on Instagram, but I also follow some animals as well. It's relaxing to check in with what Azuki, the Japanese hedgehog, is doing, watch Nala, the cat, sleeping on a laptop. Animals on Instagram tend to do a lot of the same things humans do. They go for walks, they nap, they eat. But recently, it's emerged that something is happening in the pet influencer world that has never, to my knowledge, happened with any humans on Instagram. Influencers are now cloning their pets so that the animal, or at least their brand, can live on after it dies. Input magazine recently profiled the owner of Willow the wolf dog, who was succeeded by his clone Phoenix. Now, cloning pets isn't new. Barbara Streisand famously cloned her dog Samantha back in 2018. The press had a field day with that, but given that Barbara Streisand built a fake street of shops in the basement of her house, a fake street of fully stocked fake shops where she pretends to buy gifts for her friends, as far as I'm concerned, cloning her pet is not the strangest thing she's ever done. Streisand used the American company Viagen to clone Samantha and I must admit that I go to Viagen's website with a cynical mindset. Plenty of dogs and cats in shelters needing homes, etc. A fool and their money, etc. But as I start to read through the client testimonials, I find myself contemplating philosophy, ontology, the notion of what a human or non-human being is. I find myself moved. Viagen clients talk about difficult childhoods, about being moved from foster home to foster home and how their pets, when they found them, became their world. Clients talk about how their pets made them better people, made them feel such deep love, gave them a sense of family. They talk about how devastated they were when their pets died. The clients are fully aware that the clone will never be the same as their original pet. One client in particular, the owner of a cat called Bits, discourses at length about the cloning process, writing about how they understand their pet is not a collection of cells, that she is as much a product of nearly two decades of love and interaction with us and the world around her as she is her DNA. I know you can't clone a soul. Bits' owner goes on to describe how they're undergoing the cloning process because it offers them something unique. The ability to intertwine the moments you've cherished so much in a familiar face with a new set of memories that will carry you into the future. And this is what blows me away about humans. Even on a site for cloning pets, we're wrestling with the big questions. 
Spitz's owner describes a new way of interacting with a new type of being in the world. They've thought this through and they're open to this new experience. And given that Microsoft patented technology last year that would reincarnate deceased people as chatbots using material drawn from their social media posts and chat logs, it seems like we're all going to be contemplating these sort of relationships a lot more in the future. Jennifer Walsh there with Things No Things, bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more ambivalent feelings about technological miracles next Saturday tea time and in small but perfectly filling portions each weekday at ten past six on Lorcan Murray's Classic Drive. Till then, bye now. <laughs>